Well, Constantine's patronage to the church did what Diocletian's persecution had failed to do. It corrupted the church. She soon forgot her special calling as her absent bridegroom's espoused chaste virgin, and she sinfully gave her hand in marriage to the world that had crucified her bridegroom. And this set the stage for the Thyatiran period of church history. If Pergamos represents the marriage of the church to the world, Thyatira represents her cohabitation with the world in the marriage bed. By the time of the Thyatiran stage of church history, the church had been living with the world for quite some time, and she had spoiled her virginity, her purity. The fourth church to receive a letter from the glorified Son of God was the church at Thyatira. And this church represents prophetically the years from approximately 600 to 1500 A.D. when Romanism, which is an ungodly mixture of paganism and Judaism and Christianity when it dominated Christendom, dominated the church. The letter to the Thyatiran church is found in Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29, and although it is the longest of the seven church letters found in Revelation 2 and 3, it is written to the smallest and the least significant of those seven Asia Minor cities. Beginning with this fourth church, we find a slight change occurs in the Lord's messages. And this is something, if you remember, that we discussed back in lesson number nine when we talked about how these seven churches are clustered into two groups consisting of the first three and then the last four. Now, one of the ways that we know that the Lord made a distinction between the first three and the last four churches was the reversed order of his appeal and then his promised award. In his first three messages, the letter to the church at Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamos, he gave his standard appeal, you know, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit hath to say unto the churches. He gave that first before he then went on to give the promised award to the one who is the overcomer. However, this order is distinctly reversed in the last four churches. So we know that there was, there is a difference. <clears throat> and this distinction between the first three and the last four makes sense in light of what literally developed in church history. The first three church stages of history all began and ended at specific times. Ephesus began on the day of Pentecost. And when did it end? It represents the apostolic church age. So it ended when the last apostle died, which was John, and that was around the year 100. You could say that for each of the first three. They began at a specific time. They ended at a specific time. However, the last four churches, although beginning at successive stages in church history, you know, when each succeeding type of church dominated Christendom, Yet they all continue to the end of the church age. Now, each one dominated Christendom for a certain period of time, but it didn't end. 
In other words, the Thyatira church, which we're going to look at today, was, is the papal church, Romanism. It continues on today, doesn't it? Even though it ended around 1500 as far as dominating Christendom. Same thing with Sardis, which represents the Protestant church. It continues on till the end. The um, next church represents uh, the missionary evangelistic type of church, Philadelphia. It continues right on to the end. And the Laodicean church, even though it didn't start until, what, I can't remember the dates it started, but around the 18-1900s, it continues right on to the end. It even goes on into the tribulation. Of course, all the unsaved from all four of those last churches go on into the tribulation and come together into that one world ecumenical church. So there is a distinction between these two groups. Now, although Catholics will often claim that the first church was the Roman Catholic Church, and you will hear that from them, and that all the various branches of Protestantism have simply broken off from Rome, that is not true. That simply is not true. And our history um, that we've been looking at through the, the, our history of church history, or our study of church history, I should say, through these churches has demonstrated that that isn't true. There was no Roman Catholic Church really until the Pope was acknowledged as the head of Christendom. And this did not occur until the 7th century. For the first three centuries, the church was strong in its doctrine and in its purity as she grew under the teaching of the apostles, under the apostolic church stage of history. And then as she also grew under the fires of purification during the times of persecution, and that was, you know, the next 200 years. It wasn't until the time of this man, Constantine, that the church began to get more and more corrupt as she drifted further and further from the word of God. Until, of course, by the time of the 7th century, men claiming to be God's servants were ready to acknowledge a man in the place of Christ to be the head of the church. Now, contrary to what Catholicism also teaches Peter, the Apostle Peter, was not the first bishop of Rome. In other words, he was not the first pope. The, you know, the Roman Catholic Church did not officially begin until the establishment of the Roman papacy, when that bishop of Rome became the pope. And... Uh, we can prove from the scripture that Peter was not the first pope, as they say. They say that every pope can be traced back to, you know, Peter. If Peter was the first pope, if he was the first bishop of Rome, as Catholicism claims, then Catholicism had better forget about the doctrine of papal infallibility which it does teach that the Pope, when he speaks, is infallible. They would really need to do away with that because we know that Peter was rebuked repeatedly for having made errors. Any of you who were with us in our study of the life of Christ certainly know that. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. 
As a matter of fact, Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times at the end there. He was restored, of course, but to say that Peter was infallible would be a contradiction of the Scripture. Peter was even rebuked by the Apostle Paul, as a matter of fact, and you can read about that in Galatians 2.11. Furthermore, Peter was married. There are several scriptures which prove that to us. Remember, his mother-in-law was sick. You can't have a mother-in-law unless you're married. And he refused to let men bow to him, Acts 10, 25 and 26. He wore no crown, as popes do, 1 Peter 5, 4. There is no scriptural proof that Peter ever went to Rome. It would be difficult to be the bishop of Rome, the first pope, if you never went to Rome. Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles, right? Paul. It even tells us that in the scripture. Whereas Peter's ministry was primarily to Jewish people, Galatians 2, 7 to 9. Now this truth alone, the fact that his ministry was to Jewish people, is sufficient to demonstrate that Peter was not the bishop of Rome because Rome is a Gentile city. Acts 18.2. And then also, unlike the Catholic popes, Peter did not place tradition on a level with the word of God. 1 Peter 1.18. Peter was not the first pope. He was not the first bishop of Rome. Now, since the Thyatira letter is the longest of the seven Revelation church messages, it's going to take us, as you probably knew before I even said this, it's going to take us several weeks to get through it effectively. Today's lesson is merely part one at our look at this church uh, letter. And our four-part outline is basically going to follow the same format that we've been using with all of the other churches we've looked at. First of all, we're going to consider some of the known details about the city of Thyatira. Then we'll consider some of the known details about the church which existed there and what that church's situation was like living in its particular environment. And then we're going to proceed to consider the last half of verse 18 in which we'll look at the description of Christ. You know, each description is taken from the vision that John had of the glorified Christ in chapter 1. In this particular letter, he calls himself the Son of God, who hath his his eyes are like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now, in consideration then of the fourth part of our outline on the declaration from Christ, which covers the whole rest of the letter, verses 19 to 29, we're only going to have time this morning to consider the first subdivision. We'll look at his approval. And then when we get back um, after our special time next week, when we get back on the whatever that date will be, the 24th when we come back, we will discuss his accusation, his admonition, his award, and his appeal. All right, so let's start by, um, actually, before I get into the details of the city, I would like to read to you the whole letter so that everything I talk about, you'll maybe remember some parts of the letter. We won't get to all of it, but I will be talking in general about a lot of it. So let's go ahead and start at verse 18 and read the entire letter that the Thyatiran church received from Christ. He says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, 
and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. Twice he says, and thy works. And the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which callest herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keep my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken in shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That's a powerful letter, isn't it? It's a long letter, too. I hope we can get through it in two lessons, but we'll see. Details about the city. The early history of the city of Thyatira is really not known until it was refounded by Seleucus I. He was the founder of the Seleucid dynasty about 300 years before Christ. It was a small, thriving town which was located about 40 miles southeast of Pergamos. You see all the letters, they go in a circle. So the postman from Patmos could just go up this way and then down there, wind up in Laodicea delivering his seven messages. It was actually built for the defense of Pergamos which was the capital, remember? Pergamos was the capital city of Asia Minor. So there was a Roman garrison located in Thyatira. Actually, Thyatira was built uh, when it was first built to be a protection for Pergamos. And so there was no city that was completely destroyed and then rebuilt as many times as the city of Thyatira. And for that reason... It's very disappointing to go to see the ruins of Thyatira today because they're only they're they're very small. It's only one city block of ruins, and there's not much left at all to look at. Uh, just a few little pillars that are fallen over. Now, although Thyatira was the least significant city of the seven cities that are mentioned in Revelation chapters two and three, in that it had very little political or religious significance compared to some of the other cities we've talked about already, yet Thyatira was a manufacturing center, and it was known for its cloth industry. Weaving, dyeing, and sewing produced its major sources of income. And this fact made Thyatira kind of a fashion center. 
for the clothing industry of this of the day. Like this woman here in her purple apron. She got her apron from Thyatira. That was the fashion capital. You know, long before Paris, it was Thyatira. And the city was dominated. They have found this out as they've dug up in that one little block area. They found out that the city was dominated by trade guilds. And as one commentator I read put it very cleverly, he said not only was the city dominated by trade guilds, but also by designing women. (laughs) I thought that was clever because we'll be talking about Jezebel and Lydia also. Thyatira was located in a very rich agricultural area. It was in the Lycus Valley. Lydia, who is mentioned in the book of Acts, was a Thyatiran merchant woman. She was a seller of a very expensive purple dye, which was manufactured back in her hometown of Thyatira. And by the way, what color do we predominantly associate with the hierarchy of Catholicism? Reddish purple. Exactly. The cardinals wear red. There's a lot of purple in, the, in Catholicism. This um, city was known for making a purplish scarlet colored dye. And this was produced from the madder root, which grew in the Lycus Valley, and also from the murex, M-U-R-E-X. It was a little tiny shellfish. And it was located in the Lycus River. The Thyatirans would extract one little tiny drop of purple liquid from the throat of each one of these shellfish in order to make their famous scarlet red dye. And this color today is known as Turkish red. The historian Pliny recorded that one pound, just one pound of this dye cost 1,000 denarii. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to us until we realize that one denarii was a common laborer's day's wage. So one pound of this dye costs $1,000. Lydia traveled and she sold purple colored fabric. Now Catherine, this is where you get to stand up. This is our present-day Lydia. She didn't know that I was going to be talking on this today, but she wore purple. That's what Lydia did. She um, sold this purple fabric to the wealthy citizens of Europe and Asia Minor. And she herself was probably quite wealthy from her sales. I don't know if she worked on commission or what, but I imagine she was, maybe her parents owned the dye factory, but she was probably a wealthy lady. She was apparently temporarily living in Philippi, selling her purple cloth, when one day she was assembled with other women of like belief out near the river at Philippi. They didn't have a church, and the women met out near a river. She heard Paul, the Apostle Paul, preach. And Acts 16, verses 14 and 15, tell us what happened from there. It says, And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening to Paul. 
And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is Luke writing, of course. And Lydia was saved that morning. As soon as she was saved and heard the gospel, she had been a worshiper of God, which tells us that she was of what race or faith. She was, yes, she was Jewish. More than likely, she was Jewish. She was assembled with other Jewish women. She was a worshiper of God. Paul comes to the city, preaches to the women. I guess there were no men in that church. Philipp, the Philippian church was started by women. And the Lord tugged at her heart. She accepted Christ. And what was the first thing she did? She got before that, she got baptized. Immediately, she wanted to get baptized. Remember how we talked about that last week? That's the first step of obedience. And I love the part where she says, where it says, and her household, her whole household got saved also. So she was um, the birthplace and the home when she wasn't traveling of Lydia was Thyatira. And she was also, by the way, Paul's first European convert. Isn't that nice to know? The first European convert was a woman. I love that. That's probably because I'm a woman. <laughs> Since she was a uh, Jewish, this tells us that there was a Jewish community in Thyatira, probably a much smaller community than we've seen in other places such as Ephesus and especially Smyrna where the Jews were really anti-Christian and persecuted the, the Christians. But there was some kind of a small Jewish community in Thyatira. It was also, the city was also known for its many trade guilds. You know, the trade guilds were the forerunners to our present-day trade unions. And these were probably, they speculate, more completely organized in Thyatira than in any of the other ancient cities. A trade guild was a fellowship of people who were engaged in the same trade. There would be, for example, a potter's guild. There would be a tanner's guild. There would be a bronze worker's guild, a silversmith's guild. Do you remember when we talked about Demetrius in Acts 19 who had gotten all of his guild members? He was a silversmith. He got them all together in order to try to get rid of the Apostle Paul because he was destroying their idol-making business. This, this was a trade guild situation in Ephesus. And there were also, of course, guilds for every other kind of trade that you can imagine. In Thyatira, what would one of the major guilds have been, do you imagine? Right. The Dyer's Guild or the Cloth Maker's Guild, the Weaving Guild, those would have been the prominent guilds in Thyatira, although they had the Potter's Guild and the other ones too. Now the members of the various guilds would come together in order to discuss matters which involved their particular trade. You know, they might get together like the gasoline people do to hike up their prices or whatever. In most of the ancient past and also in mid medieval times, if you remember from your history back in high school, it was virtually impossible for someone who was not a member of his local town guild, his trade guild, it was impossible for that one to even really carry on business because he would be ostracized and he would be boycotted by all of the other trade workers, the, the ones who were in the guild. 
So it was essential that a tradesman in Thyatira, particularly the city of guilds, it was very important that a tradesman belong to the guild which was related to his particular work, or he would barely be able to scrape out an existence. Now, although persecution of the Christians in Thyatira was not nearly as bad, remember I'm talking about the first century church when the church was still being persecuted. Now, although in Thyatira it wasn't as bad as in the other three churches that we've already discussed, yet persecution still did exist. The Thyatiran citizens were involved, like the whole known world at that time under the Roman Empire, they were involved in the Caesar cult, in worshiping Caesar. They also boasted of a temple to Apollo, the false sun god. He was considered the sun god. Actually, in Thyatira, Caesar was worshipped as Apollo incarnate, is who they thought Caesar was. They thought he was the sun god incarnate. Now, each of the various trade guilds dedicated itself to a particular deity. And frequently, what they would do is they'd have these big feasts that they would all get together in order to honor their guild god, whichever god that they had selected. So the Christians of Thyatira, you can see, would have a problem because these frequent feasts to these guild gods were big parties in which everyone in the guild, let's say it's the dyer's guild, everyone who was a dyer in Thyatira was expected to attend. Remember now, to not belong to the guild of your trade was to be boycotted. Virtually, you would go out of business. The situation was very difficult for the Christians because these lavish parties that they would have included three basic elements. First of all, a cup of wine was drunk as a toast of honor to that particular guild god. Secondly, during the fellowship meal, it was the custom to serve meat from animals which had been slain in a sacrifice to the pagan gods. You know, when they sacrificed an animal, actually very little of the meat went to the sacrifice. Most of the rest of that meat, after it had been offered as a sacrifice, was taken to the marketplace and it was sold. And these fellowship meals were also accompanied by excessive drinking. Then the third element of these guild feasts was that they almost always ended up in a drunken sexual orgy. So we see that the Christians were faced with a real dilemma. On the one hand, if they refused to belong to the guild of their trade, they were almost automatically out of business and they'd have no way to provide for their family. On the other hand, if they did join the guild, they were expected to attend the feasts that I just described to you. So the Christians, you know, they knew, of course, that they were no longer under law, but that they're under grace now. And, and that means that they were free to eat anything that they wanted to. You and I are free to eat and drink anything we want to, right? Remember when Peter saw the sheet with all the animals, God said, you, you know, everything's clean. Now, from now on, you can eat whatever you want to. Yet, that doesn't, liberty is not a license for 
compromise, is it? Liberty is not a license to corrupt yourself. Was it right for believers in Christ to come together to meet with their fellows, fellow tradesmen to participate in a banquet which was dedicated to the gods of heathenism? Would that be right? You see, the Christians, while they would have understood that the gods that were being toasted and the gods that the animals had been sacrificed to were really no gods at all, they would understand that, that they were just false. There were no gods, really, probably demons. They would have understood that. But the problem arose in the fact that the non-Christians didn't know these truths. So it would appear to the non-Christians, the pagan people, that the Christian who drank the cup of wine toasted to the guild god and the Christian who ate the meat which had been sacrificed to the guild god was actually sanctioning or giving his approval to that god. Just so do you see the dilemma. And by the way, it was taught in the early church that no Christian should join a guild. This was what was taught, that they should keep themselves holy and separate. Remember how we talked about Israel. They were to be holy and separate. Balaam was the one that corrupted them in trying to talk, you know, oh, well, you're free in your covenant relationship with God. You can mingle. You can do whatever you want. We're going to see this is essentially what Jezebel tries to tell this church. The same exact lie. So anyway, the Christian at Thyatira, which was a city loaded with trade guilds, was faced with a very serious problem. Should he go to the feasts of his business associates and make it appear to all the spectators and participants that he was sanctioning what was going on there, or should he not participate and most likely be forced out of business? So each Christian, you see, had to make a choice. They had to make up their own mind about it. They had to determine their own level of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing you and I have to do today. We have to determine that fine line. You know, how far are we going to take our liberties? Are we going to avoid things so that somebody else won't stumble? Even though we know we're free in Christ to do certain things, we don't want another brother to stumble, do we? There was something else I was going to say. What was it? It Maybe it'll come to me in a minute. But we have to determine our own level of commitment. Oh, I know what it was. We should also do things that we should avoid things that even give the appearance of evil. A lot of times I have used that scripture with my children. I'll say to them, yes, I know that doing such and such is okay. But does it give the appearance of evil? Even if it's close to giving an appearance of evil, don't do it. So that Christian in Thyatira would have to make a choice. He could dedicate himself to living a separated lifestyle which would, would result in him having to totally rely on who? For his needs. He'd have to totally rely on the Lord. Do you think the Lord would take care of his needs? 
If he said, Lord, I cannot do this. I cannot mingle with the, the world in such a way and give the appearance of evil and make it look like I'm sanctioning their God. I'm going to have to totally rely on you for my income and for everything. The, the Lord would supply the need. He would. Or, on the other hand, he could go ahead and he could mingle and give the pagans the idea that he was sanctioning their idolatry and their immorality. Furthermore, if he did decide that it would be okay to go ahead and mingle with them, it would have to be on a regular basis. This wasn't just a Christmas party at the end of the year. This was a regular thing that they frequently got together. Um, And you had to participate in these or you were not in the guild. And do you know that if you regularly participate with the world in their idolatry and in their immorality, do you think you're going to influence them or do you think they are going to influence you? They are eventually going to influence you because the flesh is weak. And sooner or later, that Christian, if he decided to go that way, the way Jezebel is telling the people in this church to go, that person would eventually get tainted with some kind of idolatry or immorality. Well, let's discuss now the details about the church. Since there is no record in the scripture which tells us specifically about any evangelistic Uh, outreach to the city of Thyatira, it has been suggested that it was either an offshoot from the church at Ephesus, again, you know, maybe all six of the other churches were offshoots from Ephesus where Paul had really developed that church. Or the other possibility is, who do you think might have founded the church in Thyatira? You got it. Very possibly it could have been Lydia, right? That makes sense. When she, after she got saved, came home, perhaps she and her household established the church there in Thyatira. That's very possible. The primary characteristic about the church was its works. Remember when I was reading it? Actually, it says works a total of three times. That's their primary characteristics. They were works-oriented. Their works were toward men rather than toward sound doctrinal belief. In fact, this church was indicted by the Lord Jesus for allowing a false prophetess by the name of Uh, Jezebel, I just had her up here. They had allowed her to spread her wicked heresy throughout the church. It's believed, by the way, that this woman, let me put her back up here, was merely symbolically called Jezebel. Nobody I read really felt that her name was Jezebel. Um, They feel that the Lord purposely called her Jezebel in order to affiliate her with the idolatrous queen of Israel back in the Old Testament who was the wife of King Ahab, weak little King Ahab. And Jezebel from the Old Testament was the one who had enticed Israel to add Baal worship to their religious ceremonies. Contrary to the teaching of the early Christian church that no Christian should belong to these trade guilds, that they had no business being involved in these wicked trade guilds and all that they did, yet uh, Jezebel was teaching that it was okay 
for the Christians to participate in them and to eat those things which were sacrificed to idols. And even some commentators feel that she was even saying it was okay to fornicate with them. I can't imagine they would listen to a woman say that, but perhaps she did. But at any rate, she was saying it's okay to have spiritual idolatry with them. That was her teaching. By such teaching, she was actually seducing them, you see, to commit both spiritual and physical fornication with the pagans. So as we'll see, the Lord had a whole lot to expose and to condemn in this particular assembly of believers. Although he commended them highly for their works, yet absolutely no amount of sacrificial and even loving works can compensate for a tolerance and an acceptance of evil. By permitting the false prophetess to influence them, the church was led into great compromise, both of her morals and of her doctrine. And Christ denounced this very strongly. The strongest words he has to say in any of these churches, he calls these things the depths of Satan. Prophetically speaking, the church at Thyatira represents the fourth stage of church history. We've talked about this in our introduction. This stage, as I said earlier, began with the rise of Pope Gregory I in the year 590 A.D., and it ceased to dominate Christendom in the 1500s with the rise of the Reformation. Although the Thyatiran church, which developed in this period, still continues on, and it will until the Lord's second coming. Now, some Bible commentators refer to this time in history as the papal church stage. Still others call it the church of the dark ages, because truly it was a time when the darkness of paganism crept into Christianity. You know, this actually we saw that this began in the age of Pergamos, but it increased mightily during the stage of Thyatira until the light which the Lord Jesus Christ had entrusted to his church almost flickered out. Although we know, of course, that God always has his what? Remnant. He always has his true believers, his true overcomers. To turn because we're going to start now the description that Christ gives of himself. Let's look at verse 18 again. He says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now, in each one of the seven church letters in chapters 2 and 3, Christ identifies himself in his salutation to that church in a particular unique way, a way that is unique to the situation of that particular church. Remember, to the Ephesians, he was the one who had the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walked in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. To the Smyrnans, he was the first and the 
last, and he was the one who was dead and is alive. He had to give them some hope about the resurrection and remind them about that. Then in his letter to the Pergamite church, he designated himself as the one with what coming out of his mouth? Right, the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now, to the Thyatirans, Christ identifies himself as the Son of God the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. And I think just after reading that little description of himself, it should immediately be obvious to to us that this letter was not going to be some kind of a little tranquilizer to this church. In other words, it was not going to be a letter which was primarily to comfort them in their hard times, you know, in the trade guild situation. It wasn't a letter to soothe them. It wasn't a letter to encourage them to continue to be faithful, etc., etc. Because how do we see the Lord Jesus in this designation? We see him as the all-seeing judge. And that doesn't sound real comforting. Now, the Lord's references to himself in the Thyatiran situation are taken, as all seven are, from John's description of the glorified Christ back in chapter 1. In this case, let's look over at chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. And I want you to notice something different about the description he gives the Thyatirans from what he said in verse 13 of chapter 1. Do you notice that John described the one he saw in the midst of the seven candlesticks as one like unto the son of who? Man. Now notice that when the Lord referred to himself in the Thyatiran church over in chapter 2 verse 18, how does he designate himself? Not the son of man. He's changed something here. He calls himself the son of God. Well, why do you suppose he made this change? Let me give you three very possible reasons why, instead of referring to himself as the Son of Man, he referred to himself as the Son of God. First of all, who did I say the city's primary god was? Hmm? Right, Apollo. Apollo. They had a big temple there to Apollo, who was worshipped as the sun god. In fact, they worshipped Caesar as incarnate sun god. So the Lord Jesus here, you see, is purposely emphasizing his preeminence over any sun god. He is preeminent as the son of God, the only God. So I'm sure that's one reason he called himself the Son of God. Secondly, the Son of Man is the designation Christ uses in his, you know, humanity. To speak of his humanity, this is the designation John gave as he saw the Son of Man ministering to his church in love and in tenderness. You know, trimming the lamps, filling them with oil, all that kind of thing. That's the Lord in his tenderness and in his humanity. However, when he, when he, the Lord himself, speaks to the church at Thyatira, which represents the Dark Ages church, the Lord stresses the fact that the, he is the very Son of God himself. Now, this church, or the church, 
the church, period, is represented in scripture as a he or a she. Which? She. Just like Israel is talked about as a she, in the scripture, the church is represented as a female. She is the bride of Christ. Well, the church during this time in history placed her own authority over the authority of God's word. So you see, she, the church, just like Jezebel, was claiming the role of a prophetess. As she, with each succeeding pope, claimed the church claimed to have more and more and more added revelation from God. Now, we're going to mention some of those added, unscriptural revelations that the prophetess church claimed that she had through the popes next time when you come back on the 24th or whatever it is. I'm not going to get into that right now. Furthermore, this is the same reason why the Lord Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God. The papal church put a man in the very place of Christ himself. And they called this man the vicar, V-I-C-A-R, the vicar, vicar of Christ. He is proclaimed to be Christ's infallible representative on earth. That is blasphemy. That is blasphemy. You know, when this dogma of the infallibility of the Pope was proposed in the Catholic Church. And when it was added at the Council of the Vatican, many of the Catholic bishops who were there in attendance protested. And they said, this is going too far. We know for a fact our history shows that popes have reversed each other and have contradicted each other over and over again. So it's ridiculous to say that each pope is infallible. However, it did become a dogma of the church. Now, how did the position of pope even come about in the first place? I've already showed you that Peter was not the first pope. Scripture proves that. Well, during the Middle Ages, the various succeeding bishops of Rome, you see there were bishops all over, the, all over Christendom. There was a bishop in Jerusalem. There was a bishop in Constantinople. There was a bishop here, a bishop there. Well, the succeeding bishops of Rome began to claim that they were the sole representatives. They were the only representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. And they gradually made it forbidden for any other bishop to be called Papa which is where the word pope comes from. That's what the word pope means, is papa. And they took to themselves, therefore, the three titles which had been given to Emperor Constantine. As the head of the pagan priesthood, Constantine had been called the Pontifex Maximus. That was a title for the pagan head of all the pagan religions. As the head of the Christian church, Constantine referred to himself as vicarious Christi, which means the vicar of Christ. 
Now, by this title, Constantine was declaring that he was acting in the very place of Christ over the church. Then the bishops of the Christian church during the time of Constantine gave him the title Bishop of Bishops. That was the title they gave for him. So the Papas of Rome, even to this very day, took for themselves all three of these names. Today, the Pope is known as the Bishop of Bishops, he is known as the Vicar of Christ, and he is known as the Pontifex Maximus. The Lord was reminding the Thyatiran church that he is the very Son of God, which makes him omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. He alone <clears throat> speaks with supreme and final authority. He alone is the head of the church, not the church. The church is not the final and supreme authority. The church does not have authority over Christ, and certainly not the Pope, and certainly not Mary. And that brings us to the third reason why he probably referred to himself as the Son of God to this particular church rather than as the Son of Man. The church stage, which is represented by Thyatira, makes Jesus very popular as the son of Mary. This is a term which elevates Mary, definitely, while at the same time it lowers the Lord. Mary was merely a human female who could never, ever take the place of God. And the true Mary... The sweet, true Mary of the scripture realized this truth. And she must absolutely be horrified by what a large segment of Christendom has made of her. They not only refer to Jesus as the son of Mary, but they call Mary the mother of God. In 1965, Mary, by the Catholic Church, was declared to be the mother of the church as well. Now, by the way, you might find this very interesting. I about jumped out of my chair when I read this in my International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. The name of the city of Thyatira, before it was named Thyatira, and we're going to get into that next time. The name in Greek means continual sacrifice, which is what occurs during the Mass. But the name of the city of Thyatira, previously to being called that name, was called Semiramis. I didn't know that. And maybe that doesn't mean anything to you right now. But let me tell you who Semiramis was. Semiramis was the wife of Nimrod. Did we discuss this a little bit last week? Nimrod was the builder of the Tower of Babel. Now, when Nimrod died, Semiramis, his widow, proclaimed him to be the sun god. And when she later gave birth to a son named Tammuz, whose name is in the scripture in Ezekiel, she said that Tammuz was Nimrod reborn. She claimed that he was supernaturally conceived, 
and that he was the promised savior. In the religion that developed from these lies of Satan, not only was the child Tammuz worshipped, but the mother was worshipped also. In fact, the mother, Semiramis, was even worshipped more than the son, Tammuz. Now, this mother-son cult eventually spread to all the world. What happened after the Tower of Babel? They scattered all over the world. So as they scattered all over the world with their different languages, they took this mother-son cult with them. So what have we got? Over in China, we have a mother and son cult. The mother is called Xingmu or Holy Mother. She's pictured with a child in her arms and with rays of glory around her head. The Germans worship her as virgin the virgin Hertha, who also has a child in her arms. To the Scandinavians, she is Disa, again with a child in her arms. The Druids called her Virgo Patitura and worshipped her as the mother of God. In India, she's called Devaki and her child is Krishna. The Greeks called her Aphrodite and the Romans called her Venus. And her child was Jupiter. In Egypt, she was known as Isis and her child as Horus. When the children of Israel fell into apostasy, they were also defiled with this mother goddess cult. It tells us in Judges 2.13, they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth was the name for the mother goddess. You can also see Judges 10.6, 1 Samuel 7.3.4, all kinds of verses. You can get them in your notes. One of the titles by which this goddess was known was the Queen of Heaven. Jeremiah 44.17-19. As a matter of fact, they made her, they used to weep for Tammuz for 40 days. That's where Lent comes from. And while they were weeping, they made little hot cross buns. If you want to know where some of these things come from, history can be so fascinating. By the way, the Easter egg comes from Tammuz. That's another story, too. Okay. Jeremiah rebuked his people for worshiping her, for worshiping Ashtaroth. But they rebelled against his warning. And this false worship then, having spread from Babel, or Babylon, to the various nations in different names, finally became established in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire. Now, to attract the pagans into the Christian faith, such men as Constantine and other men who thought similarly to Constantine thought that it would be a great idea to replace the great mother of paganism with Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, of course she was the most logical choice to draw the pagans, you see, into the church, into the Christian church. These pagans were not willing, you see, to give up their addiction to the mother goddess. They loved the mother goddess. So all they did was change her name. Instead of being called Venus, they said she was Mary. 
It is a official Catholic doctrine to worship Mary as the Queen of Heaven. That's official. And also to worship her as the Mother of God. So in light of this history, I just jumped out of my chair when I found out that Thyatira used to be called Semiramis. Now, did you know that there are currently 4.5 million Catholics... Not on the face of the earth, there's more than that. But 4.5 million Catholics on six different continents who have signed petitions to Pope John Paul II in order to elevate even higher the status of Mary so that she is officially referred to as co-redemptrix with Jesus Christ. Signers of these petitions include the late Mother Teresa, 500 bishops and 40 cardinals from around the world, including Cardinal John J. O'Connor of New York. Mark Miraville, who is a professor of Marian theology, they study, you know, there's a whole study of Mary in Catholic seminaries. He is a professor at the Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, said that he has already met twice with the Pope about this and that he feels very confident of his soon support in making Mary officially co-redemptrix. Mr. Miraville, or Dr. Miraville, said this. This is a direct quote. Without Mary's cooperation with God in agreeing to the birth of Jesus, there would be no redemption. I'm sorry, I just get real upset because there's so many wonderful people. People are trapped in a system that is full of lies. And we need to tell them the truth. We need to tell them the truth because these are lovely people. He commended them for their charity and their love and their works. David Hunt, in his extremely well-documented book, again, another book I recommend to you if you want to know more truth. If you can't handle it, don't get it. But his book is called The Woman Rides the Beast. He says this in his chapter, which is entitled, What About Mary? This is a quote. He says, The most authoritative book written on Catholicism's Virgin Mary is by Cardinal and Saint Alphonsus de Liguori. Titled The Glories of Mary, it is a virtual compendium of what the great saints of the Roman Catholic Church have to say about Mary down through the centuries. The chapter headings are staggering, crediting Mary with attributes, abilities, titles, and functions that belong to Christ alone. Here are some of the titles they give to Mary. Mary, our life. Mary, our sweetness. Mary, our hope. Mary, our help. Mary, our advocate. Mary, our guardian. Mary, our salvation. Here is a sampling of Liguori's quotes of what the saints have said concerning Mary's role in salvation. These are direct quotes from Catholic saints. Sinners receive pardon by Mary alone. He falls and is lost who has not recourse to Mary. Mary is called the gate of heaven because no one can enter that blessed kingdom without passing through her. The way of salvation is open to none otherwise than through Mary. 
The salvation of all depends on their being favored and protected by Mary. He who is protected by Mary will be saved. He who is not will be lost. Our salvation depends on thee. God will not save us without the intercession of Mary. Who would receive any grace were it not for thee, O Mother of God? These are just some of the quotes. In 1993, at the close of the Sunday Mass service in Denver, Colorado, Pope John Paul II consigned all people, all young people of the world, to Mary's protection and guidance in his prayer. This is a direct quote. This is his prayer. He said, Mary of the New Advent, we implore your protection on the preparations that will now begin for the next meeting. Mary, full of grace, we entrust the next World Youth Day to you. Mary, assumed into heaven. Now that's referring to the false doctrine of the Catholic Church that Mary was bodily resurrected into heaven just like Jesus Christ. He said, Mary, assumed into heaven, we entrust the young people of the world, in fact the whole world, to you. And then in another speech later on that year, uh, September 1993, made in Lithuania, Pope John Paul II spoke of Mary as the mother of the church, the queen of the apostles. This is a direct quote. He referred to as mother of the church, queen of the apostles, and the dwelling place of the Trinity. End of quote. He told the priests and all those who were religious people that they should look to Mary, who is venerated here. He said, to Mary, I entrust all of you. This is out of the magazine, The Pope Speaks, March, April, volume 39, number 2, 1994, page 105. Now, this type of heretical thinking which would put a mere human being, a sinner who needed a Savior just as much in you and as, I, and, as you and I, and she herself admitted it in Luke 147. She admitted she was a sinner who needed a Savior. This type of thinking that would put her on an equal basis with the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the only sinless human being to ever live, and who alone shed his blood and died on the cross and conquered sin on our behalf and conquered the grave on our behalf and conquered Satan on our behalf, is another reason why the Lord Jesus Christ reminded the Thyatiran church of his identity as the Son of God. Jesus is God, and while it is true that Mary was his human mother, she is not the mother of him as God. He was God from eternity past. He was God before Mary was even conceived in her mother's womb. In fact, the truth is that Jesus Christ is Mary's creator as well as her savior. She was the mother only of his physical body. And in fact, who put that body there and created that physical body? He did. Jesus Christ did. So she is not the mother of God, and she would be the first to admit it. Mary was a godly, godly woman. Well, going on in verse 18, the Lord also described himself to the Thyatiran church as the one with eyes like unto 
a flame of fire. Now this speaks of his penetrating knowledge. He knows all. He sees all. The church at Thyatira was a very busy, a very active church. As we said, it's a church which exhibited charity and service and faith and patience. Good things. Lots of good things. Who wouldn't admit that Mother Teresa did lots of good things? It isn't going to get her to heaven, but she sure did a lot of good things. But what does he see with his penetrating eyes of fire? He sees deep on the inside where only the Lord can see that there was leaven beginning to rise. They had allowed a woman to place some leaven into the bread of life, into the teaching of the of the truth of the word of God. In fact, they even encouraged her by committing spiritual adultery with her. They allowed her wicked lies to influence many of them to follow her ungodly ways, her ungodly teaching. Remember that this fourth church parallels the fourth parable in Matthew 13. Do you remember that? When I told you the parables parallel the seven churches? Well, this one parable, parables, <laughs> this one parallels the parable of the leaven hidden in the meal. Leaven, I don't know if I'm on the right transparency, but leaven, which is yeast in the scripture, symbolizes what? Evil. In the meal offering, which was a prophetic picture, a prophetic type of Jesus Christ, leaven was strictly forbidden. You were not allowed to put leaven in the meal offering. That spoke of Christ because he's sinless. Now the woman of the parable was doing, therefore, just what she was strictly forbidden not to do. Bible scholars agree that the woman putting the leaven into the yeast represents the Jezebel of Thyatira who was placing her own corrupt doctrine, her own leaven, into the word of God, you know, the bread of life, which corrupted the doctrine of the Son of God and of the, of the church, the truth. She seduced God's servants until almost the whole of Christendom was leavened. A little leaven spoileth the whole lump. On another level, the woman placing the leaven into the meal, in other words, the Jezebel of Thyatira, represents the Catholic Church, which managed to hide her leaven of false doctrine into Christendom. The Lord Jesus saw Jezebel's leaven in the midst of his church. He saw it with his eyes like a flame of fire, which not only denotes his penetrating knowledge, but also it speaks of his fiery judgment as well. Um, let me finish with one little thing here, and then we'll close. I'll let you read about his fine feet of brass, but they, as you can imagine, also speak of judgment. In verse 23, the Lord said this about Jezebel. He said, um, 
Because they wouldn't dismiss her from their presence, in verse 23, he said, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts. He was saying here that all the churches are going to know that he is the one who searches into the innermost regions of a man or a woman. He sees the thoughts, he sees the motives, he sees the intentions, he sees the attitudes. You know, he is the only one who sees all, and he is going to use the judgment of this church to be an example to all of the churches. After just having reemphasized his deity and his oneness with God by referring to himself as the Son of God, he was essentially telling the Thyatirans that he knows everything that's going on within them. He knows everything behind what they are doing. If they are willing to allow a false prophetess into their midst and they're willing to listen to her persuade them to mingle with the pagans and to interact with the pagans and to commit spiritual adultery with the pagans, he's saying it's because her teaching tickled their own ears. It appealed to their own lusts and their own desires. And that's what he's saying to the church at Thyatira. Told you it was a strong letter. I'll let you read about the rest of it in your notes. Please do. Please come back.